0: Well, good morning. My name is Levi, one of the pastors here, Freedom Village Church. Um, Just so you're aware, in the next two weeks, actually in two weeks, I believe February 5th, there's going to be a sort of a spiel about our family ministry's vision um, here during service. Um, That's in two weeks. I believe that's February 5th. Um, So if you are a family, if you're not going to be here that week, make sure to tune in online. Um, just so you know what's happening downstairs with kids, that's from ages 3 to, to 12th grade. You're aware of what's going on. There are some new things and some updates for you, so uh, be aware of that coming up in, in, in two weeks. All right, let's pray as, as we should. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time together. Just open our eyes and our hearts to what you have for us. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 34, Psalm chapter 34, if you do have your Bibles with you. God is deliverer, amen? God is deliverer. He delivers his people. Um, in, in the book of Genesis, uh, we find God delivering Noah uh, and his family from the great flood waters. He delivers Joseph from the pit. Uh, he delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. He delivers Israel from enemy nations, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, he delivers Jonah from the belly of the fish. He delivers Daniel from the fire and, and the lion. Uh, he delivers. And it's all pointing to the eventual deliverance, of course, uh, found in Jesus Christ for all of God's people. I mean, many of us can, can list ways that God has delivered us, whether it be from addiction or a situation that wasn't ideal. God is a God who delivers. Uh, in fact, in the Scriptures, there's a name for God that I don't, at least I wasn't as familiar with, um, Yahweh Mapalti, which, which means "God who delivers." And today, through Psalm 34, what we're going to see is that God delivers us from our fears. God delivers us from our fears. Now, now most psalms, some psalms, not most psalms. Some psalms, you have no idea what the context is. But a lot of psalms, you do. And this one, we definitely know what the context is of psalm number 34. We know that David wrote it. Uh, David wrote a lot of the psalms, but this psalm in particular, uh, he he wrote as well. And and we know the most famous story of David, which is David and Goliath, Goliath from Gath. And uh, the story goes such as this. You got Israel, you got the Philistines, and they were at war. The Philistines were pretty high-tech people. They fought with a lot of iron, even some bronze. Not all nations did that, did that at that point, but the Philistines, they were at war with the Israelites, and, and the Philistines decided to go through this valley called Elah to, to go up into the, the heart of Israel, and, and as they go there, King Saul made his stand there at the valley of Elah, and it wasn't just any skirmish between two nations. This was like winner takes all. The nation that wins is going to enslave the nation that loses. It's a big deal. So there they are, this standoff here at the Valley of Elah. And out of the Philistine army comes their champion, standing at about nine feet tall, armor head to toe. In fact, he had an armor bearer. And there he comes. He steps out of that army. There's silence from the Israelite line. Because the, the, the giant, Goliath from Gath, he challenges them, says, Hey, we, we, we don't need to fight. Everyone doesn't need to fight. How about one on one combat? The winner takes all that, that sort of situation. And King Saul had no idea what to do, no clue. 40 days go by, and they just be chilling. And Goliath, he's spouting off this trash talk about Israel, about their God, and then comes a young shepherd boy. He comes around because his father sent him to go give his brothers some food, because they're standing there, you know, long time. They have to stand there. They're probably getting hungry, and maybe he's even giving food to the captains too, you know, just just, just helping them out while they're standing there. And then he hears what Goliath from Gath is saying, and David don't like it. Uh, He doesn't like it so much so he goes up to King Saul. He says, hey, Nobody's going to fight Goliath. I'll fight Goliath. And King Saul's like, what? This is their conversation in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Saul said to David in response to David's request to go fight the giant. This is their conversation. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul... Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear that took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Pretty convincing argument. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. May the Lord be with you. Absolutely stone cold fearless. Not because of what he can do, but because of what he knows God can do. And in fact, he has offered armor and a sword. David doesn't take the armor. He's too small. He's 16 to 18 years old, somewhere around there. But he doesn't take the sword because he says he doesn't require it because God will be fighting with him. So here comes David, five smooth stones with a sling. There's Goliath fully armored, somewhere around nine feet tall, a killing machine. And then David reaches into his pouch and gets one of those stones, puts it in a sling, and here's the sound effect I make when I tell this story to my daughter. Just like that. Um, And Goliath falls to the ground, dead. And David takes Goliath's sword. Why? Because he didn't have a sword. Why? Because he didn't require it. Took Goliath's sword and took his head and held it up and I'm rephrasing, said, who's next? It's pretty baller. But this was David, absolutely fearless. Success and victory, and and we know, and and, and sometimes uh, we know all too well that in the highs of life, uh, they're sometimes followed by trials and difficulty. And this was true of David's life because he became quite popular for what he did. People started singing songs. Saul, he slays his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. I mean, he was becoming a big deal. And no doubt, there were probably people talking and saying things, saying something like, you know, David could be a pretty good leader if you gave him the opportunity. And these things started to reach the ear of Saul, King Saul, and he became jealous. So much so, he attempts to kill David multiple times, attempts to pin him to a wall with a spear. So David has no other choice but to flee. So he's running from King Saul, literally running for his life. And King Saul, he's he's not just running after himself, but he's sending assassins to go kill David. Through caves, through hills. David is running for his life year after year. This was David's life. Who can he trust? Around the corner, there could be another assassin. I I don't know what's going to happen. Who's going to betray me? I could die at any moment. This was David's life for years. And after those years go by, David needs food, and he needs a weapon, which is an interesting point, because before, he said he didn't require a weapon. But years and years go by, and now he needs a weapon. And so he goes to a city called Nob. And he finds this priest, an, an Israel priest, at the city of Nob. And he says, hey, give me weapons. Give me, give me food. And the, king, and, and the priest said, well, we have this sacrificial food, but it's been consecrated. And, and David David lies. And he says, I'm actually on a mission. I'm on a secret mission for King Saul. So I need this food, and I, I, need, I need the weapons that you have. And the priest said, well, we have this consecrated food. I'm not sure about that. And then the only weapon we have is, is this sword, Goliath's sword that we keep here. David said, oh, that'll do, that'll do. I'm on a secret mission, just give me that. So he takes the food, he takes the sword, and he's on his way. And David starts to think, well, maybe I can't hide in, in my own land, but maybe I can hide in an enemy city. So he comes to the city of Gath, which if you've been listening, you'll know that Goliath is from Gath. So there's David, probably one of the most popular or famous warriors from Israel in Gath, walking up into that place with none other than the sword that he used to take the head of their warrior leader, Goliath. So it didn't take long for them to realize, hey, I think that's David, the one that they sing songs about. You know, Saul his thousands, David his tens of thousands, that's him. Hold up, is that Goliath's sword? Oh, come on, maybe they were insulted, I don't know. But there he was. They weren't happy about it. And King Achish, the leader of Gath, uh, comes in. He's furious. He's like, why why is David here? They're about to put him in house arrest, about to kill him. And David resorts to acting insane. He starts to spit on his beard. Starts to even spit on other people. Starts to yell out random things that, that are gibberish. And in those days, that was very insulting, which is probably an unnecessary caveat because today, that wouldn't be so great. But this is what David resorted to, a- acting insane. We, we find David fearless, and after years and years of, of looking at spears flying past his head, of not knowing where to turn, of not knowing who's going to betray him next, now we, we see some fear set in in David's life, and he starts to act insane. And actually, it works. God delivers him even in this situation. He leaves the city of Gath. He's able to escape with his life and he makes it to a cave. And as he's in this cave, other people hear, other people on for David's cause, they hear that David is in this cave. They go to him. These are people the text says that are in debt, in distress and discontented with Saul's leadership. 400 people join David in or around this cave. And this is the context of Psalm 34. A group of people, 400, that have no idea what's coming next. They're uncertain. It could be death. I'm following this guy. David's chasing him to kill him. What if they do the same thing to me? Right? This is this the reality for these 400 people there in or around that cave. And this is where Psalm 34, maybe it wasn't written at the time, but something like this was sung for that group of 400 in and around that cave. And it reads like this. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 of Psalm 34 together. So as we consider that context here, David is showing them, as he shows us, how to fight fear. He gives them three ways to respond to fear, and we're going to see that here. Let's, let's read together. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So many things cause fear in our lives, don't they? And it sets in at a very early age. Even even as kids, we fear. We fear possibly Getting bullied or getting overlooked by our teachers or parents. We fear uh, not being liked by our peers. And as teens, there are different sort of fears. How will others think of me? The, feel of, the fear of failing our classes or maybe not getting accepted to our number one choice college. And then adulthood comes and, and some serious fears start to set in. What, what, if, what if I never marry? All the fears that come with raising children or the fear of possibly not having children. Fear of not being able to find a job or losing the one that you have. These are all understandable fears, but fears we struggle with nonetheless. So the question again is how can we fight against fear? How can we seek after God's deliverance from fear? Or how should we respond to fear? And David starts like this. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Well, in the book of Psalms, we know that blessing and praising, it's a pretty serious theme. And this word bless, the root word in the Hebrew, um, actually comes from the word ni. Uh, So so literally, what's happened, bless the Lord, is sort of to bend the knee before a sovereign. It's a very humble posture. And David also says, my boast will be in the Lord. I mean, what else is David going to boast about? He's being hunted and he's humiliated. My boast will be in the Lord. Uh, and, And then he continues and he says, let the humble hear and be glad. And what we're seeing here in the first three verses is, is a posture of humility. Uh, David, humiliated and hunted, doesn't come to God entitled, uh, saying, hey, look, look at everything I've done for you. Or, hey, it's about time I had a break. You know, this, this has been, you know, year after year after year. Come on, God, it, it's, it's about time. It's about time for something good to happen. That's not his attitude. His attitude, even in the midst of being hunted, Even in the midst of being humiliated in a cave, running for his life year after year, is one of humility. He is submitting before his sovereign. I mean, can you imagine being hunted? Like someone's trying to take your life. Having no place to lay your head because you're hiding in caves or never knowing who to trust. Never knowing if one of King Saul's assassins are close by. This was the reality for David. And yet in the midst of that, he says these words, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I think David here knows the power of praise. By by choosing to praise God for what he knows to be true of God's character, David is overwhelming his fear with that truth. Uh, Rather than being Led by his heart, he's leading his heart. Rather than following his heart, he's leading his heart through praise of God's character, of who he is and what he's done. And this is really the principle that we see here in the first three verses. We see that when fear comes in, in those uncertain times of life, don't put your praise on pause. Praise him at all times. Uh, Praise him in times of fear, worry, anxiety, uncertainty. Praise him even in a cave running from those that are seeking to take your life. Praise him. Our life is uncertain. Our circumstances are unsure, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And is always worthy of our praise. Now, what I'm not saying is that there isn't a time for lament. We've learned recently, certainly there is. But what we see here in the first three verses is that it is always appropriate to praise. It is always appropriate to praise because of his unchanging character in the midst of our changing circumstances, amen? But there's another element to this, I think, that that we're going to see. Not only does David praise God at all times, but he calls others to join him in that praise. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You're going to see this word, oh, a few times, and I'm just going to say this once. Uh, a lot of commentators, when, 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 as I was reading, this word, oh, should almost be read like, oh! Like it's some, like, great realization that he's having as he's speaking this, as he's singing. Oh, magnify the Lord. Oh, taste and see. Oh, fear the Lord. We're going to see that throughout. And so I'm not going to say it again, <laughs> but just imagine in your own head, when he says, oh, imagine, imagine him in a cave, seeking the Lord, beholding him. And then as these things come to his mind, it's like a song comes to his lips. And that's how I think we should be reading uh, this psalm. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now I'm going to talk to my introvert fam for a sec. This applies to everyone. But I know for myself that when I'm going through it, when there are uncertain times, what I tend to do is step back from other people, even the gathering of believers. And There's time for solitude, certainly. There's time for solitude, but it's not a long time. We are called to gather together. We are called to do this uh, together with one voice, and it's often what we really need. But I know for me, when I'm going through it, I'd much rather sit back and watch it online. I'd rather not join with others to sing praises. But David here, I think, understands the necessity of not only singing praises yourself, but singing it in community with others. Because surely there is power in praise, but there's another element of power in community praise, in collective praise together. And may our services always be pointed to him. May our praise always be pointed to him. If it's ever about, man, if this ever becomes about me or about us, I hope somebody calls me out real quick, because that's not what this is about. Our praise is to be, he's to be the center of everything that we do say, think, and feel, especially here together as we gather with one another. So David here is calling all those in the cave that are distressed, discontented, unsure about the future, he calls them to praise with him. Uh, And there's certainly power in that praise, but... Even more in corporate praise, I think. So, David's response to times of fear, times of uncertainty, is first to praise God, as we're going to see here. First to praise God, no matter the circumstances. And he continues in verse 4 I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. There's, there's more of that humility aspect that we see here. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So he says here, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Uh, Do you know what the most repeated command is in the Scriptures? It's actually, do not be afraid. Um, In the NIV version, about 70 times those exact words come up, do not be afraid. That's not including things like, don't fear, or thou shalt not fear. Different phrases of that same thing. But 70 times, just with do not be afraid. And actually, some of the most significant events in the biblical narrative include this command do not be afraid. When Abram is called to leave his father's house, he hears from the Lord, fear not. When God prepares to send Moses to Pharaoh, Elijah to Azahiah, Jeremiah to the children of Israel, Ezekiel to the Israelites, he tells them, when they are called, don't be afraid. When Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat are about to go to war, God sends Isaiah with a message to give them do not be afraid. When Nehemiah stands on the wall, the word of God to him is do not be afraid. When the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land, God tells them through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, time and time again, don't fear. Joshua, called to take the Lord's people finally into the promised land, is told be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. When the angel comes down from heaven to tell about Jesus and John the Baptist, Zacharias, Joseph, and Mary are all told, do not be afraid. When Jesus walks on water in the middle of the storm, the first words out of his mouth are, do not be afraid. And when Jesus meets the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the first words out of his mouth are, do not be afraid. And when Paul is converted on the road to Damascus, he is sent to Ananias, and Ananias is told, do not be afraid. And as Paul stands in front of the church at Corinth, And he starts to become fearful. The Holy Spirit convicts his heart. And he says, do not be afraid. And Paul puts a capstone on all this as he's writing to his son, Timothy, his son in the faith. And he says to Timothy, as Timothy is about to take on the really pressure-packed situation of taking on the ministry of Paul. Paul writes this. Now, whatever you do, know this. That God has not given us a spirit of fear. And essentially, he says, because to operate in fear is to not operate in the gift that God has given you. Now, the question comes why does God repeat and repeat the commandment, do not be afraid? And the first thing that comes to my mind is because he loves us, because he knows our tendency to fear. And so he reminds us that there's no need to be afraid. And I'll also add that I think he does so because God understands that fear cripples us from living in faith. It makes us immovable at times. It causes us to live outside of God's will for our lives, it could. Or we're not willing to take steps of faith because we're crippled by this fear. So God graciously reminds us, do not be afraid, do not fear, fear not. Now now I will say that not all fear is the same. I think we must distinguish between different concepts like fear. We have worry, concern, fear, panic. When we teach our children not to play in the street, we should. Um, but there's a different kind of fear that maybe teaches our child to sleep with a knife under their pillow is for fear of robbers. Right? Um, when, when we read the book of Proverbs and it admonishes us to work hard, as to avoid poverty or to walk in God's ways, as to avoid personal calamity, we're being motivated by something like fear. When Paul escaped through an opening in the wall in Damascus, should he have had greater faith? Were the people guilty of panic in Nehemiah's day when when they prayed to God and and set a guard as protection against their enemies? Or was Jesus wrong uh, to warn people of coming judgment and to motivate people to obedience based in part by a certain sense of fear. No, no, there is a proper fear, a proper worry and concern even. However, the truth is we can become people of fear, irrationally jumping to the worst possible conclusions, perversely relying on doomsday predictions to give us our emotional fix, unthinkingly forming our opinions or even our doctrines based on the loudest and latest news article. And that's our focus. We become people of fear, people that first go to be afraid rather than go to the feet of Jesus. But the good news is we find in our text that there's an alternative to that crippling fear. In fact, God, being the deliverer he is, delivers us from our fears first as we praise him, both individually and collectively in all circumstances. But secondly, as we see here in these verses, as we taste and see his goodness, as we taste and see His goodness. I just noticed this, but I actually think the O's form the outline of my sermon. Cool. So for David, his response to times of fear was to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, now you have to ask the question what does that mean? What does it mean to taste and see of the goodness of the Lord? Um, And this word translated as taste, it means to try something by experiencing it. Uh, So so David here is admonishing those in or around that cave and he's admonishing us as well to try God's goodness for themselves. To experience it as one would taste a new food. Once upon a time, I had COVID. Not now. And uh, as many of us have experienced, or some of us, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, um, that taste is one of those things that leaves you, right, in, uh, in COVID. This is what I experienced. Maybe not initially, but eventually, um, I I experienced no taste. And even if I was eating the greatest dish ever assembled, which is pute um, I'm from Weijangbu, Woo woo. <laughs> um but even as I was eating my favorite dish, like, it was sustaining me, but I wasn't enjoying it, right? I, was, I, was, I wasn't able to taste it. And even I, when I wake up in the morning and I drink coffee or because I'm a child, I drink orange juice, as I was drinking those things, it, <laughs> can't I just preach? Um, as I was drinking those things, it was as if I was just sipping water. Like, it was sustaining me, it was helping me, but I wasn't enjoying it, um, and the Christian life that begins with spiritual astonishment at the glory of the gospel and the, the goodness and beauty of Christian truth. The wide-eyed surprise of the infant brought into a new world of grace. But we can lose our taste for those things, can't we? We can lose our taste through the pain and suffering of life or the false promises of sin. We can come down with some sort of spiritual COVID. Where, where, we're, where we're going through the motions, there's ritual. There's ritual but we're not invested, we're not in it, we're not engaged. And David here is reminding these 400 uh, people in that cave uh, is to taste and experience the Lord's goodness once again, to remember how he's been good to them and to go back to those moments that he has countlessly been faithful, to consider in their hearts and minds the goodness and the greatness of their God or in different words, to behold him there in a cave. Um, as I uh, was considering to preach Psalm 34, it was actually pre-Vision Sunday, I, pre-conversations that James has had with staff about what word he was gonna uh, present uh, through, through, I think, what the Lord has shown him for this year. But as I'm reading in Psalm 34 and in other places in scripture, actually this idea of beholding is crucial. Uh, it's a big deal, and I, I even see that here. That he's calling them, really, as he's calling them to taste and see, he's calling them to behold the Lord, to consider him, to remember him, to to put your focus on him, to change your perspective from the spears flying by your head to the character and work of God. I think we see that here clearly. But David also calls them to see. So taste and see. In Genesis uh, 1, after each creative act, God saw that it was good. And at the end of the creation story, God saw that creation was not just good, but it was very good. So I think a certain element to this is that David is calling us to open our eyes to the goodness of God around us, right, in his, in his creative order. In the lives of other people, one of the, um, it, was, it was a blessing of a time that we had with our missional family. Um, but it wasn't me leading this time, but we gathered around and we just went around and shared how God has been good to us individually. And it was immensely encouraging. Just to see people that I love, that I've been doing life with, how God has been good to them. Circumstances might not, not, might not be going well, but they can still recall the goodness of God in their life. And that's exactly where David goes here. He goes to testimony. Uh, because another element to David's teaching here is not simply teaching what he's learned through the study of the scriptures, which is what we need And it's my tendency when I teach, when I instruct, is to, you know, gain from what Pastor James conversations, gain from professors in college, gain from these different things and, and, you know, spew spew them out. But an effective and helpful way of instruction, especially discipleship, is to actually be ready to share of God's goodness from your own life. Uh, It's immensely encouraging and very helpful, especially for those in times of fear. Um, so, So the question I'd ask is, are you ready to do that? It's not my tendency. It really isn't to share like that. But I think this is where this convicts me. I need to be ready to share because certainly God has been good to me. And there, there are, there's a plethora of things to share. And are we ready to do that? But scriptures, also this word see, um, it's used often to, to relate to intimacy in relationship. Um, so, for example, in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis, um, they said that the text says that they saw the Lord, then they hid their faces from him, no longer seeing him and no longer um, able to observe him in that way. And it represented a relational separation that took place there in the garden. And we can see that throughout the Old Testament, actually, that the face is significant because it's what you see with. right? I, I see you, therefore, that connection is made. And an example um, I, could, I could use is, I watch YouTube too much. Um, but if there's a YouTube video playing in the background, or maybe a show I've seen a whole bunch of times, right? but it's playing there, I'm observing it, but I'm not really connected to it. right? I'm not connecting with it. It's just kind of there in the background. Maybe I'm playing another handphone game, I'm exposing myself for being a totally irresponsible human being, but bear with me. Um, maybe watching a video, doing something else, you're you're observing it, but you're not connected, right? There's no connection there. And I think this is actually a danger, especially for those of us, I think for all of us, but especially for those of us that work full-time in Christian ministry, we can become desensitized to the things of God, where we're going through the motions, the rituals, but we're not connected to actually or engaging with who God is and, and our relationship with him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience it for yourself. That's the call here. Basically, if you've ever tried to convince somebody to try a new food that you enjoy or or maybe a new show that you've enjoyed, try it. You'll like it. That's sort of the sense here. Try try it. Try the Lord, right? Experience the Lord. Do it. No, you'll you'll like it. It's great. It's amazing. This is the sense we're getting here. He's inviting us. He's inviting those 400 in that cave and around that cave to to experience the goodness of the Lord. And he's celebrating what he has discovered, the salvation of the Lord. He's sharing that with them and calling them to experience the Lord there. So David's response to times of fear and uncertainty are to praise God himself and collectively in all circumstances, but also to taste and see his goodness. Now David continues here. In verse 9, 9 through 10, he says this. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. And if if you're questioning whether or not David is considering his life, he mentions the young lions. I think he's starting to remember about how God has delivered him in the past. Because now the lions are starting to come up in his mind. It could be, right? I don't know for certain. So he starts remembering those lines. They suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord have no lack no good thing. And and as we're talking about beholding the Lord this year, and that's our word, really a big part of beholding God is fearing him, what it means to fear the Lord. So I want to take some time to unpack what that means. What does it mean to fear the Lord? And there are three things I'm going to mention about that. I'm not a big fan of of sub-points. You'll get them today. What does it mean to fear the Lord? A, B, and C. And it may sound strange, um, but one way that we can fight against fear is by fearing the Lord, right? And and, and so I think it's it's crucially important that we do do know what that means. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Because there has to be some sort of distinction made between chapter 34, verse 4, which says... Right? He delivers us from all our fears, and then he commands them to fear. So there has to be a distinction. There could be similarities, but there has to be a distinction made between the first fear mentioned and then the later fears mentioned. Right? Because he's not delivering us from the fear of God. He's delivering us from something else. So what is the fear of the Lord? And first I'll say this. The fear of the Lord means giving God your undivided attention giving God your undivided attention. Psalm chapter 86, verse 11 uh, says this. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So according to the psalmist, an undivided heart, it leads to and is a part of this fearing of the Lord. And so let's think about it this way. Um, what fears? What what you fear grabs your attention, All right? What you fear grabs your attention. Let's say, I mean, I'm scared of bears. David wasn't. I'm, I'd be pretty scared of bears. Um, they can, you know, kill you. And then, let's say there's a bear there, and then I, I come into contact. Okay, let's use a moose. I've actually come into contact a moose. That's so less. Okay. Mo- m- moose are big though. So, but I have come into contact with a wild moose, and I was, I was scared. It, moose is huge. It was bigger than our car. It was big, right? moose, is, moose, moose are big. And um, <laughs> I'm trying to convince you that this is a legitimate illustration. But the moose was big, and I, I was scared of the moose. And, and what you find when you come into contact with something you fear is that your eyes don't leave that thing, right? I might be moving away. I might be like, oh. But I'm, I'm looking at that moose, right? Because if, it, if it's coming out, I know what that moose can do. I know what that moose is capable of. So my attention is at that moose. Now, that's a negative example, for what I'm trying to explain. But it gets your undivided attention. God should have our unwavering attention in that he doesn't become a small compartment of our lives, perhaps on Sundays. But we give him the attention that, that he is the meaning and purpose of our lives. And we put him at the center. He has our undivided attention. We don't try to balance Him, living for him with other things, he's at the center. He he has our full attention. But secondly, I think what it means to fear the Lord, it means giving God your unrivaled awe. Giving God your unrivaled awe. Psalm chapter 47, verse 2 says this. For the Lord, the Most High, is awe-inspiring, a great king over the whole earth, Uh, That phrase awe-inspiring is is the same uh, root word for fear that we find in the Old Testament. And and awe is the highest form of worship from the perspective of the Scriptures. So so clearly God wants to captivate us in in a way that is far more than just our intellect. Uh, Many usages of the fear of the Lord are tapping into the emotions. Because what captures our awe, as we've been learning these past two weeks... What captures our awe tends to capture our hearts. So when we see God for who he really is, we will be able to be in awe of him and more likely to adore him. And and that awe really comes from seeing how God has worked from Genesis to Revelation, but also what he's doing in our own lives. It's that experience that comes from being overwhelmed by how good, powerful, and faithful our Lord is. So to fear the Lord, it means undivided attention, it means unrivaled awe, and it also means unparalleled allegiance, unparalleled allegiance. And we'll see this in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases Him and love Him and serve Him with all your heart and soul. So here we're seeing an exhortation for total commitment to God involving all your heart and all your soul. It gives us a resolve to stay the course because what we know about God to be true God gets our allegiance because of that, Uh, more than just our allegiance to any person or country or job or whatever that might be. Our allegiance to him is paramount in our lives. And oftentimes, the, the problems we have, the problem we have is that we give our earthly fears more weight than they deserve. We give more weight to the bigness, and these are serious issues. I'm not trying to to belittle anyone's issue or anyone's problem. But our tendency tends to be to give the weight of our earthly fears more weight than they deserve, give give more weight to the bigness of our circumstances than we do to the bigness of our God. Or, Or in other words, we fear circumstances so much because we fear God so little. And that's the third principle that we see here today. How do we respond to times of fear and uncertainty? Well, we praise God individually and collectively in all times. We taste and see his goodness again. We, we experience him once again. And thirdly, we fear God over our circumstances. As we close today, I'm going to ask the, the praise team to come, come up. And as we do close, um, I just want us to pray through those three things. I want us to give him praise. We'll do this all at once. We're not going to have three different times of prayer, but just all at once. I want you to look up at the screen um, as as we allow time to reflect on what we've heard today. Let's pray praises to the Lord. Let's also go back and, and experience his goodness once again, recall and reflect on how he's been good to us in prayer. Thank him for those times, but also recommit ourselves to fearing him above all other circumstances. Give our allegiance to him once again, our awe to him, our attention to him. So we'll do that in prayer collectively, um, and then I'll close after some time. Let's pray to our Lord together.